Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming back, I'm excited to have return guest, Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Time After Time, and writer of The 7% Solution. We are talking To Be or Not To Be and Ernest Lubitsch and the quote-unquote Lubitsch touch. First off, what I watched this week, Criterion's been putting up their 70s car movies, and just on a coincidence, I was watching some of the same movies. I was watching Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, but the interesting one was Gone in 60 Seconds, which I'm seeing for the first time too. Now, there's a lot of talk about how amazing that last sequence is and how long that last sequence is. And yeah, it needs to be seen to be believed. But H.B. Halicki, I get this the main star. He, I guess, died making the sequel too in one of the stunts. But one of the crazier things about it was I watched it on Canopy and the setup and all the exposition for like the first half hour is like very, I won't call it as far as it's called avant-garde, but very disconnected sound disconnected from image very i don't know uh alan renee it it interesting choice but also wanted to do my weekly uh talking about the strike this thing that barely has anything to do with me and i'm just a guy in the midwest obloviating about it one of the quotes i want to reiterate is richard linklater has a movie playing at venice called hitman that sounds really good which of course a linklater movie sounding good shocker uh, everyone kind of passed out on his last movie which was amazing apollo 11 and a half but he d- did an interview for deadline and i want to read this quote it's a long quote but it's it, it 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 stuck on it stuck a thumb in a lot of sores what place does film have in our fractured culture right now to me that's the deeper crisis it isn't just film it's modern life does anyone really care about anything enough to support it including democracy let's start with that where does it fit economically is there a new model that's negating the old but not replacing it with anything stable like typical newsrooms going out of business and being replaced by ad-based clickbait is that a step forward I don't think so. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for writers, not good, not for the, nor for the community. So why are we doing it? You could say that about the film industry too. Tech companies came in and we went from film being art with value to it being coming content that you click on. But at the end of the day, nobody's happy with that arrangement. Even the tech people are screaming that they're losing billions of dollars. It's like, this is their world and we adapted to, and they're not happy. They're the monolithic overlords who put everyone else out of business. As our industry is chugged along, really nobody's been happy. But like a good democracy, even if everyone's a little pissed off, it's still all moving forward that we can live with. But not anymore. Just stop. It's not working. Nobody's making money and nobody's happy. You think maybe we should retrench and look at what worked before. Is it against the law to try to craft the greatest hits of the past and go back to a paradigm that used to work? Is that so bad? What was that company whose motto was move fast and break things? Yeah, well, that's where we are. It's broken. Thanks. I hope your stock price went up a bunch and that you made a lot of money that you selfishly hoarded in some offshore account. Go create a village for yourself in New Zealand. Man, Link later throwing fire, huh? What I love about, specifically about the comment, is there's a lot of people arguing that why can't we go back? And this goes to, I have a very pie-in-the-sky strike solution i want to put out on the interwebs i know there's no way this can be adapted and i understand why it can't be adapted but can't the amptp just kind of break up and because i mean a big part of the problem is that all the people the signatories have different business models and all the old studios during the pandemic got in with the streaming wars And now they're just all waiting to see who's the last one standing so they can consolidate and buy the other studios up. Meanwhile, they're kind of hesitantly going back to their old model. And every time it doesn't work, they're like, the sky is falling again. And every time it does work, they're like, it's a miracle. Why can't the studios just like fixate more on theatrical and try to come to some kind of interesting solution on their libraries and because that's going to bring value to their libraries again and get away from this 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 whole thing about the strike the the, the it really gets to me is just this feeling that this is this this 
this is making content that of course algorithms can create because it's content to after you've spent 40 hours a day working you come home to watch while you just watch, let your life pass you by and go to sleep to it's it's comfort soma it's just bullshit and yes of course there should be an argument that that algorithms can create that but that's that is such small potatoes anyway onto this episode with nicholas meyer it is always i'm always so excited to get to talk to him he if you know how much star trek 2 means to me just to have him to occasionally talk random movies about star trek 2 is one of my favorite is periodically i put as my favorite movie of all time and i should warn it, it nicholas meyer is super sharp because you get you, you'll get to about maybe the 50 minute mark in this interview with like 10 minutes to go and that's when he casually reveals he has covid He's dealing with a very foggy brain while coming up with like just instant recall of just his love of Lubitsch and, and the Lubitsch touch we go, we go into to be or not to be. It's Mark. I'm so excited to be able to present this conversation with Nicholas Meyer. How's your writer strike? Well, I think it's safe to say it's a misery for all concerned. It's it's these are dreadful times, no matter in which direction one looks, as I'm sure you know. And it doesn't stop with the Writers Guild. It doesn't stop with the motion picture. It's just these are unprecedented times, and there doesn't seem to be any grown-ups in the room. Any room. Pick a room. Okay. I heard I listened to your episode of Movies That Made Me, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and you you were talking to Joe Dante about you guys were writing something together or working on something together? We've been yeah, we were working on trying to do an American television series based on an Italian television series. And you know, we sketched it out and submitted it everywhere and it just didn't get picked up, or let's say it hasn't picked up, been picked up yet. Yet, uh, I think the the theory is that if you live long enough, you may get to see your stuff made. Okay, that's optimistic. I guess I should also ask you about with Scorsese's new movie coming out. Everyone then asks what's his next movie, and I have some people ask about the Teddy Roosevelt thing that you were on for a while. Well, I wrote one of my best scripts. But you never know why these things happen, and you never know why they don't. I spent a lot of time on it. I went to Cuba. I went to the Dakota Badlands. I went everywhere, and I worked hard on it. When was the time frame? When was the process like? Were you working with him a lot on it? Or were you working on your uh, spec form and then just handing it No, it wasn't spec. I pitched it to him. He said, let's do it. Pitched it to... Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniela Taplin was the producer and we worked on it. And when I gave it to him, he was very excited and called me up and was, it was on a Sunday afternoon, I remember. And then it just never went anywhere. And I, I was unable to really figure out or find out why people are sometimes very reluctant, and I suspect not just in Hollywood, to have what I'll call uncomfortable conversations. And so you get silence, you get stuff that doesn't quite track. So like when enthusiasm wanes, like that isn't, is I don't want to like um, say it's like a typical writer thing, because it seems like Hollywood's big thing is investing in a lot of written talent that it will never use and and it'll let that talent die by atrophy by or by the non-answer i think that's very often the case okay okay well do you want to switch to more positive topics here i am yeah. it's your nickel when did when did um how did you first come across Ernest Lubitsch's work was it at a repertory cinema or did you see you did you manage to see any of his stuff well, i'm not his... that old if, okay. if that's where you're going <laughs> I, as soon as that was in my mouth, I was like, I know how old he is. What the fuck am I saying? Here's the thing. I discovered most of the movies that I've come to know on television as a kid. Okay. 
I think that's where I found Nanochka. That's where I found to be or not to be. I grew up in New York. There was a program called Million Dollar Movie. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Scorsese talks about it a lot. Every night at 7.30, they would show the same movie for one week. And there was something on Channel 2 called The Late Show or The Night Show. It was on Channel 7. They would, Because television at that point was desperate for, uh, what do they call it, content. And all these movies that had been viewed primarily as disposable, certainly the studio's as a rule, we're not terribly interested in preserving them. That's another Scorsese topic. But basically, they would keep them in vaults if they kept them. If they were nitrate, they turned to powder. And then there was television. Suddenly, there was a whole new life for these things. And of course, that's ultimately, you know, when actors and writers and directors got interested in residuals. If you're showing this stuff again, if you're now showing it on the airplanes. And then they said oh wow you can you could put this on tape betamax and so forth all these new technologies that in effect gave new life to a lot of these old movies and then of course growing up in new york there were the revival cinemas the new yorker the thalia film forum downtown and eventually i you know i haunted all those places but originally I caught them when I was supposed to be doing homework. When did you first start picking up on the credit that a certain you, you noticed that it was an Ernest Lubitsch movie? Well, I think I, I can't pretend to remember. This was all during the 50s. And at first, these names went by me in a blur. And I didn't even know not only what they were there, but sort of why they were there. But But, you know, starting with movie stars which is, I guess, where everybody starts. And then you start noticing certain connective tissue. Every time Greta Garbo makes a movie, she's photographed by William Daniels and so forth. And then I guess I started getting movie books and I was a big Billy Wilder fan. And I think when, you, when you're a big Billy Wilder fan, it's only a matter of time until you get to Lubitsch. I suppose everybody knows the story of the thing that he has on his wall. Yeah. You want to what go would Lubitsch do? Yeah. And Lubitsch was definitely his mentor. And I think, you know, starting with things like Nanochka, I sort of backdoored my way into the Lubitsch stuff. And I remember my dad telling me about Trouble in Paradise. And that that's how it sort of started for me okay your dad got you in new trouble it's it's shocking how this, this is similar to me I, I think the first time i ever heard of lubitsch was in cameron crowe's book his interviews with billy wilder and that's why i heard about the sign and then lubitsch got a bit of popularity i want to say around 2003 between it wasn't just cameron crowe but wes anderson specifically put, put trouble in paradise as one of his favorite movies and big influences and then he got put onto the Criterion Collection, and that's where I first saw it and fell in love and then watched all, at least the major titles at that point. Oh, there was an article. I think it was about Lubitsch in The New Yorker that I read when I was a kid. I'm not sure who wrote it, maybe Samson Rafelson, but it talked about, this is all I remember about the article, that for an extremely sophisticated man whose movies were always so carefully appointed, he would come to work with different color socks on. <laughs> okay, this isn't from your childhood, if I'm correct. I, to be fair, I wasn't able to read the entire article. I only read a little bit of excerpts online. But Sam Rafelson, just a few years before he died, it was published in 1981, wrote an article called Freundschaft that was also the intro of his book, Three Screen Comedies, which also has an introduction by Pauline Kael. And it's a story about, he wrote a, a, a obituary for Lubitsch before he died. and Good good planning. And Lubitsch found it and read it. And then Lubitsch and him started working on the obituary together. And they started rewriting together until Lubitsch finally said, well, your original version was better. But one of the things from that what, in the obituary was... Lubitsch was surprised that Rafelson made fun of the fact that his 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 pants and his his shirt never matched or something like that. Oh, so my memory is pretty good. 
Yeah, no, that's the, um, this sounds like a really interesting piece because the other reason I wanted to talk to you specifically about this is you immediately jumped on the writer aspects. And I think a lot of people, at least myself, that knows mostly Lubitsch's last sway of films because he has this really big history going all the way from the teens, starting as an actor, to heights in Europe where he could have gone in a completely different direction. Then he, when the talkies come around, he survives that and turns out to be one of the most literate directors, even though he, in theory, by a lot of people's estimation, invented the modern movie musical. But I want to talk to you about it because he's so literate and he doesn't write, or at least he doesn't have credited. He never takes credit on his, on his movies, writing credit. It's a very interesting subject, which has to do with foreigners who master English. I don't know why he doesn't take credit. I, I don't know his life and work well enough to know whether he could or felt he could, or if he didn't, why. But my dad wrote a biography of Joseph Conrad, and Joseph Conrad never spoke a word of English until he was, I think, 21 years old, and then went on to become one of the supreme masters of that language. And he is joined in that oddball company by such people as Vladimir Nabokov and more recently, definitely Billy Wilder, who learned English from the sports pages when he showed up here. Also Victor Borga, a Dane who, again, and what all these people have in common, and particularly you can look at it with Billy Wilder and Victor Borga uh, and also Nabokov, is an extreme sensitivity to English idiomatic expressions, things that we take for granted. Billy Wilder really glommed onto these things. If you look at the fortune cookie and she said, well, I needed the money for my act. And he says, yeah, for the money you can put on quite an act. And he's picked up on these things, the phrases that we sort of take for granted, you know, I'm all tied up that, that they hear sort of first literally. One of my favorite phrases uh, I hadn't heard him say before, I looked a lot into Joseph McBride's book, How Did Lubitsch Do It? I never heard, Wilder has a lot of quotes about Lubitsch, but one of the ones I'd never seen before was in the mid-70s when, say, like Last Tango in Paris came out and there was a supposed new sexual freedom. He said, Lubitsch could do more with a closed door than most of these filmmakers can do with an open fly. <laughs> do you know that there's a, there's a Lubitsch moment, speaking of open doors, he was working, I think, on a King Arthur movie. And they were having real trouble because you couldn't show adultery and you couldn't show Lancelot and Guinevere having carnal relations. Kind of an important part. So how do you do this in this day and age? Now, I hope I'm getting this right, but Guinevere and Lancelot are together, or I, I, I can't exactly remember how it works, but King Arthur is rather stout at this point, and he leaves Guinevere's, their, their bedroom, and he realizes that he forgot his sword and his sword belt, so he goes back rather abruptly into the bedroom and picks up his sword and sword belt. And then as he goes out the door and she's in the back there, he tries to fasten his sword belt and it's too small. Okay. So he picked the wrong belt, someone else's belt. This is how it was conveyed that he had been deceived. McBride talks a lot in his in his introduction about a lot of filmmakers, almost across the board, Lubitsch was a widely respected director of his time. Like he was the top of Hollywood for a long time. And a lot of the reason he said that some people respected him was because they were jealous of how much he could get past 
the sensors. Because do we want to start talking about the quote unquote Lubitsch touch? And do you have a specific idea of what you think it is? Well, I gave you one example of it. It's right. it's this incredible um, indirection. Another version that I remember was, you know, when sound came in, they brought on playwrights and the playwrights wrote lots and lots of words. And here was a scene with a man and a woman whose marriage was turning cold and there were six pages and a lot of dialogue. And they gave it to... Lubitsch, who apparently solved it in half a page without a word. Man and his wife get into an elevator. The man is wearing a hat. The elevator stops at a different floor and an attractive young lady gets in. The elevator stops at the ground floor. And when the door opens, the man has removed his hat. That's the sort of that and the sword belt, which is just masterful, are real examples of his visual eloquence and subtlety. Yeah, the, the well, first off, obviously, basic cinematic language uh, works in threes, which, you know, comedy rule of three seems to work. I mean, Wilder talks a lot about the hat in Ninochka. The Then they took forever trying to figure out the hat. Or no, they were trying to figure out how she was going to fall in love with capitalism and supposedly the way Wilder tells the story. Luba just came out of the bathroom one day and goes, it's the hat. And then they came up with a three-act structure with the hat, where first she has a withering thing to say about the hat. Then... Comrades, it won't be long now. Then she's uh, kind of sniffing, sneering at the hat. And then she's lovingly bought the hat, and it's in her drawer. And she, well, she, comes, into, she comes into Leon's apartment wearing it. And she says... I don't look too foolish. And he brings you in. You look adorable. Go to bed, little father. We want to be alone. It just, I mean, it's really sweet even just he hearing you describe it. You wanted to talk about this because the language got to you, but like Lubitsch was... You know, Jean Renoir said that he invented modern Hollywood. That, in I mean, Pauline Kael was talking about the Rafelson scripts that they all worked on together, and he talked about how structurally they were ahead of anything else. And the structure, and as witty as the dialogue is, moment to moment, as the the structures of all these scenes were what they they nailed first before displaying all this massive amount of wit. Well, I think he came from silent movies. And silent movies is the language of image. And there, you know, there are people who will argue, not implausibly, that movies were really never the same when they added sound. When you look at, I mean, recently I was looking at a, a moment in a Greta Garbo, John Gilbert movie called Love, which I think is a version of Anna Karenina, if I remember correctly. Okay. And the scene of the two of them in a garden, and by the way, they were falling in love while the camera was rolling. And the camera work, it's, it's uh, William Daniels, is so exquisite. They're in shadows and he's lighting up cigarettes for them. And I mean, the heat is, is coming off the screen and there are no words. Or when you look at the battleship Potemkin and you look at the mutiny on the ship, to say nothing of the czarist murderers coming down the stairs and in Odessa. Or you look at Buster Keaton in Steamboat Bill. The eloquence of these images and a lot of the acting, which I think without having seen it, people kind of think is going to be sort of old-timey exaggeration, and some of it was. But a lot of the best of it is not. And if you trained in that era where you think in terms of pictures, that's going to be your first go-to port of call in constructing a movie and scenes. Yes, the armature, the dramatic armature is something else. And then you can add dialogue. But the best dialogue in most really great movies is 
very, very honed. There are exceptions. You look at his gal Friday and everybody's yakking a mile a minute. But the best of Lubitsch, the best of Billy Wilder, the best of John Houston, the best of Willie Wilder, the best of Orson Welles is very, very subordinate to these visual, these compositions, John Ford. You can't miss it. Yeah. And 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 John Ford, I guess, uh, again, was started in silence. Willie Wyler was the third assistant director on Ben-Hur, the silent version. Yeah, I actually just watched uh, The Liberation of L.B. Jones the other day, which is his last movie. And it was kind of fascinating how it, it, it was, you know, last movies getting mocked for being too square. But I was, this man started in the silence and he's doing a post-civil rights movement movie that's not, it, some of it doesn't age well, but some of it ages fine or it's better than you think. So anyway, the reason we started talking in our emails about this, you first mentioned Desire, which I was completely unfamiliar with, a Frank Borzaghi movie that Lubitsch was a producer on. And it, it just, not a lot of, Borzaghi is a guy, when you mentioned it, I kind of got cold sweats because I realized I've never seen a Borzaghi movie at all. This would be my first. And it gets to my point of, there's a lot of uh, oxygen that's been exhausted about not all these directors could adjust the sound and the ones we remember for the most part did they change and not a lot of people remember their pre-sound stuff for a lot of part but Lubitsch is this one that just adapted had a completely new muscle that seemed like was never being used and excelled also the other thing about the um, desire that I didn't realize I guess there was a real brief period where Lubitsch was the head of the studio for like six months and it didn't work it was going to be one of the first big director head of the studio and it didn't work out yeah i don't know what happened was i mean was it around this period is that how he had a production i didn't even know lubitsch had a lot of produced movies that others did my recollection which may be imperfect is that desire is not a paramount film is it a paramount film it, it might not be i can't even remember paramount was uh, his- I- Paramount may be where he was the head of the studio. I probably get that. Yes, that too. that 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 I that I can well uh, imagine or remember or think I'm imagining or something. But in fact, I think I it's think universal. it was universal. Yeah, it's universal. God, I'm so impressed with myself right now. I can't. <laughs> I I did this with COVID. I was and I, and I I knew it wasn't Paramount, and I was and I was. The next word out of my mouth was universal for some reason. Your fog brain can get around mine three, t- 10 times a day. Anyway, memory, if, if not a brain. But yeah, th- and that uh, another great example of, of what we were calling the Lubitsch touch is the heist at the beginning of Desire, in which relatively few words, but choice, as they say. There was, a, that, there was the, the one thing you spoiled me on, and it was as good as you said. Was that a heist? Yes, but I mean, I, I think there's something about stolen pearls or stolen necklaces oh, between that and yeah, yeah. Paradise. That I was like, okay, that's a reoccur. That's happened a few times, but yeah, and and I mean, mentor helping out. Yeah, there there was some reoccurrences I saw, but I also thought there was a lot of uh, Marlene Dietrich and Garbo. Like Dietrich was, I don't know exactly what I haven't. I'm not really great on her career post late 30s, but her and like him. Him putting someone like Garbo or Dietrich into a comedy like that, because I did read Dietrich was like really happy and it was like she thought it was one of the best scripts she had done in that decade. Or well, that she's she sort of I think saved her career with Destry Rides Again and doing comedies. I think the von Sternberg thing eventually was so over the top that it sort of wore out its welcome. And she did have to reinvent herself. Garbo reinvented herself with a comedy. It was her second to last movie, Ninochka. But she proved that she could do this. Interestingly enough, the famous scene in Ninochka where he tells her a joke and she doesn't laugh. And then he tips over backwards in his chair and everybody laughs. And she finally laughs uproariously. But there's a real question as to whether she was laughing or whether she was doing silent screen laughing because you there's so much noise on the screen. You can't tell if she's among the laughers or if she's miming laughter. It's very convincing, doesn't, doesn't sort of matter. 
But that's silent screen acting. And she was a great silent screen actress, you know, two movies with sound and she left, even though there was nothing, three movies with sound. It was Anna Christie. Well, there's, oh, and there's more. Actually, there's, there's uh, Camille. Yeah, she made a bunch of, she made a bunch of sound movies, but she stopped with Two-Faced Woman. Yeah, I guess I've never exactly gotten the Garbo laughs. So Desire, first off, it takes place in Paris, France. And were you familiar? Well, it starts in Paris, yeah. Starts in there, starts in things. Were you familiar with this Nancy Myers movie she was going to make recently called Paris Paramount? No. What was that? She tried to make a movie at Netflix last year, and she used the quote, the Lubitsch quote, where Lubitsch said, I've been to Paris, France, and I've been to Paris Paramount. I think I prefer Paris Paramount. <laughs> yeah. It, and I mean, I guess a little thing's a little Lubitsch touch, even though it was Borzaghi. Um, the one thing I loved about it was I part of the reason I... I Lubitsch seems, and many people who have tried to duplicate the Lubitsch touch talk about this, he's still so modern. He's 90 years old. The movies are 90 years old, and it still feels more modern than a lot of stuff being produced today. And one of the basic things I loved for the way I get where I came to it is it always seems like his characters, for the most part, there's a lot of exceptions, but for the most part, his characters are smart. They're all smart. They're not dumb people that do dumb things to get into contrived situations. And he seems to really love all his characters. And one basic thing- I think the- those are two very uh, accurate, if not profound, observations. I'm thinking about to be or not to be. Yeah. And the the only dumb people, the only dumb person in it is Sig Ruman. Uh, so they call me concentration camp Earhart. But you know the the Germans are sort of depicted as as buffoons, with the exception of the traitor who doesn't have a German accent. The buffoons are in love with their ideology. They they think it's part of the part of it. In Desire, my point is Gary Cooper. It's one of the few Gary Cooper movies I remember from that period where he's not dumb. He's like they play Gary Cooper is like relatively smart and on top of the situation. That's very interesting because I was talking with somebody the other day about Ball of Fire, and they felt he had been miscast as a comedian, and I wasn't sure I agreed because I I thought he could be very funny. And certainly you're right that in Desire he is no sexual innuendo intended, or maybe now we're talking like Lubitsch, on top of the situation. Very, what is it, Lubitschian? What's the, how how do we go with this? Very, very Lubitschian, yeah. Very bitchian. The the shot in there where the car drives away and Gary Cooper's on his ass, and the, it's such a cinematic shot, and I know it's Frank Borzaghi, but the reveal of the suitcase still with them was I lost I lost it that that was I really like desire I'm really glad you it's a good you. move good glad- movie oh you're welcome you wanted to talk about specifically to be or not to be to be or not to be is such a weirdly outrageous movie that, you know, going on a hundred years later or whatever it is, no reaction to it surprises me. At the time, you know, during the wartime, it was considered the height of appalling taste to have made this movie, which by the way, was Louis Malle's favorite movie was to be. Really? <laughs> Not to- yeah. And I know it because he told me. Oh, wow. Um, okay. It's so bold and, and it's it's sort of breathtaking in the same way that the producers is breathtaking because it, it, it is taking on this appalling subject with this, to, to call it cheeky, to call it insouciant, is completely to understate how outrageous it was to do this. Now, I don't remember in what year this movie was made, but I do remember quite vividly that up until Warner Brothers movie Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which I think is 38, Hollywood was not allowed to make anti-German, to put any anti-German stuff in their movies. And uh, Warner Brothers was really the first to say, fuck this. 
and make uh, make confessions of a Nazi spy, which is shrill, but they don't pull any punches. And they knew that they were going to lose their German distribution, which was very lucrative for them if they made this movie. And, you know, they were denounced in Congress as defaming the German nation and on and on and on. So I don't I can't remember what year. It's 42. And what, what they, so, talk, they talked about in the commentary was Great Dictator was the uh, fourth biggest box office movie of, I think, 41 or whatever. And so they felt courage to do this, even though it obviously, like you said, was treated tastelessly as it was tasteless. And yet there must have been some people, starting with Ernst Lubitsch, who thought this was good. And a lot of people since then have agreed with him. Well, so you know what observation I had was uh, that kind of, um, for starters, I had it, I've seen this movie a few times, but for this podcast, I watched for the first time, you brought up the producers. I watched Mel Brooks' version of this for the first time. And I don't want, the Mel Brooks version wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but I want to say the two put together is as good a case study you're going to find as how the Lubitsch touch works versus how it doesn't. Cause they, oh, very good. Yeah. Well, because the 83 version, you mentioned the producers. I remember the one thought I had was like, there's a lot of springtime for Hitler in this where you know, like the breaking the third wall doesn't work. But the one thing that all the supposed tastelessness of the original version, the movie, I don't know if it's ever been compared um to be or not to be has been compared to, but considering that this is a movie that's sincerely black comic and funny about an existential crisis to, if not the Western world, but the whole world, it reminded me of Dr. Strangelove. Oh, that's interesting. And Dr. Strangelove probably appalled people for the same cluster of reasons. Certainly it's, it's sticks a thumb in the eye of, received wisdom establishment thinking and and so forth you know it's, that started out to be a serious movie and and kubrick when he learned all he was learning about nuclear war said no no this is hilarious yeah the only way to deal with it is is to deal with it as hilarious certainly one thing that dictators and tyrants don't like is being made fun of. They'll throw you out of an airplane. They always said Charlie Chaplin was the one man that broke Hitler's heart. Well, because Hitler was a big admirer of Chaplin. Where do you think that mustache came from? But I think laughter at villainy only goes a certain distance. At the end of the day, you just may have to take this stuff on face on. I don't think that laughing at Putin would have prevented the invasion of Ukraine. And as 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 risible as that man is, he's also terrifying. He's just terrifying. And it, it's hard to do that laughter. And I think a lot of the people who had trouble with to be or not to be by that point, by the time it came out, were having difficulty. Remember, there's also a lag time between when these things are made and when they're put out, and sometimes the timing is just not good. Well, I mean, I think being able to laugh at something you can't control and something that might be an existential dilemma, like I can understand someone saying, I don't want to laugh at that. I can understand it. I just think this is a much more healthy way of dealing with it. Well, I think it's a thing that happens in stages. I think it's in stages, whether you decide you can or can't laugh it's sort of what side of bed did you get on? What year was it? And and so forth. Your ability to find it funny. I think it's easier for me to find it funny than people in the middle of the war. Maybe. I think one of the issues with the Brooks movie is that there were no stakes. You know how World War II is going to end. I mean, I know that's that's a war, that's, that's that, I'm not saying that as a problem with World War II movies that are made after 1945. I'm saying... It's a problem with that World War II movie, that's for sure. And I mean, I think that making fun of Hitler after Hitler is dead is different than daring to make fun of him when Charlie Chaplin or Ernst Lubitsch were doing it. Yeah, very much so, yeah. the Apparently a lot of people have drawn this comparison, and I think it's even been stated by its writer-director, but it didn't hit me into watching this this time, Inglorious Bastards. 
is totally comes from to be or not to be. Okay. Two things. One, I confess. First confession, I never watched the Mel Brooks to be or not to be. That is perfectly fine. I think um, Charles Durning got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor out of it, but I... Somebody once offered me a chance when I first came to Hollywood to meet Groucho Marx, and I thought it over, and in one of my rare lucid moments, I declined. Not to meet your heroes, or why? It wouldn't be the guy... I, 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 one of the things I love about Hollywood is the only chance you get to shake hands with your dreams, but I didn't want to shake hands with this dream. I felt it would be a disappointment Ooh. and I declined when I got a chance to see the Mel Brooks. And I like some of Mel Brooks's movies a lot. Young Frankenstein to me is beyond compare. I didn't want my vision of Ernst Lubitsch's to be or not to be, to be tampered with, diluted, polluted. Editor I didn't want any of that. And I will confess that I lasted 40 minutes at Inglorious Bastards. This is my second confession. Okay. And if it was supposed to be funny, I, I didn't get it. It just looked to me like somebody who didn't know what World War II was. And I'm old enough to have secondhand memories of it. Okay. Um, well, first off, getting back to uh, the Mel Brooks version, what I found weird is also this is a period where Brooks film was doing a lot of good stuff, and there's just a lot of, I don't know, chutzpah to do a remake of To Be or Not To Be at this point. And I'll spoil the one re thing that is that the one thing they do at the very beginning that's a funny gag that is the one improvement on the movie that it's not... Is this Sweet Georgia Brown? No, there's a moment early... Um, the beginning of the movie is all in Polish. And they, they sing Sweet Georgia Brown in Polish. And in the middle of it, the curtains come down and they start arguing. Um, Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks start arguing with each other. And they argue for quite some time in Polish. And an announcer comes in and goes, attention, for the sake of the audience, we will not continue this movie in Polish, but rather in English. <laughs> and this That's pretty good. That was, that was the one thing I think now that you know that you're good not to watch the movie. I would basically watch Anne Bancroft in anything, simply put. I don't want to put you on the spot about not having seen Glorious Bastards. I'm just curious. Do you know how it ends? Doesn't the movie theater catch fire and everybody, Hitler and everybody gets shot in the theater? I remember the reason I came to this conclusion was the movie when it were the thing about Glorious Bastards in the big overlap between it to be or not to be or this is about the spirit of. Lubitsch talked a lot about like satirizing the actors in the middle of war a little, but I think when I watch it, he's celebrating the fact that they have to carry on the arts when the world's deteriorating around them to a certain extent, or they have to use the arts to get through all these espionage stuff with the with the Nazis. I I think there's merit to that. I mean, Tarantino's movie celebrates the idea that the uh, the movies could kill Hitler. I didn't get the celebration. Fair enough. Are you a big Jack Benny fan? Well, I, I loved him as a television and radio comedian. I, I love that your money or your life thing. I, I loved him doing all his uh, stand-up stuff. I'm trying to think what other Jack Benny movies besides this, this was The Horn Blows at Midnight, that I, I thought he was great in this movie, but he was certainly being Jack Benny. <laughs> This is the only movie I, I, off the top of my head, I really know him from. I mean, I, I was asking Jack, Jack Benny, because I know Jack Benny's shows have a lot of influence. Neil Gaiman in particular says that he's just a big influence on a lot of people. Just He was tremendously funny. Do you, do you know the Your Money or Your Life pause that I'm talking about? No. Well, he part of his comic shtick was to project himself as a miser, as, the, as, a, as an enormous cheapskate, which, by the way, he was not. In the in a radio play, this is the most famous pause in all radio. His house is robbed, and the thief comes in and says, "Your money or your life." And there's this endless silence, dead air, and the thief said, "Did you hear what I said?" And Benny says, "I'm thinking." I think I have heard that before. <laughs> Back to to be or not to be. Are you familiar with the writer? He had written Desire. 
amongst other Lubitsch movies. He wrote Midnight, the Claudette Colbert movie I like a lot. He wrote A Royal Scandal, which technically was supposed to be Lubitsch's last movie, and he's credited on it, but he Lubitsch died eight days into making of it, and Otto Preminger finished it. And, that famous, that famous humorist. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Preminger did. Was it uh, Clean Brown that like he was on a few days? Lubitsch had two. That's hard... all. That, that that's also Lubitsch, Clooney Brown. The one before Clooney Brown, then maybe because it was L- Lubitsch started it. He had two big heart attacks, and the one, that, including the one that killed him, and one of them, both of them knocked him off a movie. And Preminger took over another movie for him before. Like well, it, it may have, it may have, he may have done a royal scandal. I, um, I, 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 I don't remember the movie well. It's Tula Bankhead, yes. I, I, you know, the the gaps I wanted to go through. I almost wanted to go backwards, so I watched Clooney Brown for the first time, but I didn't get nuts to, to nuts to the squirrels. Nuts to the squirrels, yeah. But I mean, Samson Rafelson, who by the way is Bob Rafelson's nephew. I never knew that or um, uncle. Both these, like, it seems like Lubitsch could jump around with different writers and still feel the Lubitsch touch is going to feel the same, the same verbal dexterity, the same great structure, the same treatment of characters is going to be person to person. Are there screenwriters that, like, stick out to you from Lubitsch movies? I I came back to the point that I probably should have paid more attention to who was writing these movies since I like how well written they are. Speaking of Clooney Brown, one of the things that, that threw me off about it was, and Definitely not to be or not to be. We just did an episode on the French director Robert Bresson, and we talked a lot about he's how dogmatic he was about when and when not to use music. And on the Heaven Can Wait Criterion DVD, Lubitsch's daughter talks about how he would play piano for her a lot and was a big piano player, but he didn't use a lot of music in movies. And Clooney Brown has almost no music in it. And maybe to be or not to be is drier than your average movie, but when the music's used, it's very effectively tensely used. That's very interesting. Of course, the first thing I think of when I think of Robert Bresson was his comment: "My job is not to find out what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want." And I couldn't can't help thinking, having just seen Oppenheimer, I've seen it twice, that there's an awful lot of music wall to wall. And what I find is that when it becomes wall to wall, it it stops having meaning. And and that's a movie that I liked a lot, by the way. But I don't think that that wall to wall, you know, sort of pouring music over it like ketchup really necessarily helps. And I'm, I'm thinking now of the movie Casablanca and Max Steiner's score and where music punctuates things, where music comes in, and where it doesn't, where it's it's completely just the audience sort of holding its breath or something, or the music sort of punctuating a scene. Also in, in the Kane Mutiny, his music also used to that kind of dramatic effect. And it does not surprise me that all the people we're talking about, whether you're talking about Lubitsch, whether you're talking about Frank Borzegi. Yeah. But all these people are, are Europeans. I think I suspect many of them are Jews. They were very cultivated and they were, you know, had been exposed to music all over the place. And the ones who had anything to say about where music came into their movies, which many of the working directors didn't, it just got, you know, once their cut was finished and it was off down the assembly line to the composer. But the ones who did say had some interesting opinions about it. A lot of John Ford's use of folk tunes and things. It's all very interesting to me when and where, how and why music is used in a film and what kind of music. Yeah. Clooney Brown was a little dry to me. And one of the things I found, but I mean, like also the lack of music also, one of the things I know Pauline Kael always talked about with Lubitsch and about the Lubitsch touch is a lightness of touch and trying not to do too much, which is also where Rasan would come with that. On the Criterion commentary for To Be or Not To Be, David Collat pointed out one of the big pieces of music 
it's that V for victory sequence in To Be or Not To Be where they're showing what happened to Poland after the invasion. He makes the point, I didn't realize this, that was a studio edition. And there's a lot of very ominous music being used there. I think it helps. I do too, but it's also, it's, it was interesting that it was not Lubitsch's choice. Going back and forth between the, the Mel Brooks one and this, the pace in here is just, it's just so elegantly done, so much better. Yeah, just, I mean, the, the the way I can describe the nice way I can describe the well Brooks one to use a phrase that's in uh, frequently in the Lubitsch one is it's very hammy, 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 very. Yeah, they're ch- ch- chewing up scenery. I haven't seen it, so um. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on from that. I guess winding down. The other thing I, I also watched for the first time. I, I wanted to catch up on a few gaps, and I didn't. I end up watching all the 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 one Lubitsch ones I love and I've seen a few times. But I also did for the first time, on top of watching the Brooks To Be or Not To Be, I watched for the very, very first time You've Got Mail after watching Shop Around the Corner. I watched them both in one day. I This this is a movie for specifically a lot of women in my generation is a big deal. And I remember avoiding it at the time. And they're both lessons on people who are so reverent. And I also want to talk about this with Nancy Myers too. Being such a, these people are very reverent of Lubitsch, but I don't know a nice way of saying like they just make the old movies look way more modern. I think that's very well put. And I'm, I'm not a sentimental person. First of all, let me just go on the record. I can't stand the the phrase old movies. And when people say, Oh, I like old movies or I don't like them. I really, my head grows to a point. There's either movies you've seen or there's movies you haven't seen. There's either books you've read or books you haven't read. We don't say, oh, "Oh, yeah, I love old books. It sounds stupid. And we don't say about Bach, oh, yeah, he was an oldie but a goodie. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, and why we talk about movies in this sort of patronizing way, oh, yeah, old movies. No, there's only good movies and bad movies. There's only great art and less great art or stinky art but forget these the rest of these categories it's classic it's postmodern it's baroque i don't give a fuck I'm, i i you know and i'm still stuck on bach as an oldie but a goodie yeah well <laughs> handel another oldie but a goodie uh, beethoven a less oldie but still goodie um, Here, here's an old one your and, parents would like yes oh. an old one your parents an old one your parents would like well i don't I I don't make or indulge in any of those distinctions. When I was teaching drama for directors at Chapman University a few years ago, I would show a different movie every week. I didn't show a snippet. I didn't show an excerpt. I show the whole fucking thing. And I never introduced it in any way. I never explained it. I never said, this is silent. This is foreign. This is black and white. I never said any of that. I just showed the movie. And then we would, you know, talk about it later and try to devote some, as they call it, critical thinking to it. But I don't think art needs an explanation if it's really good. It doesn't need an explanation. It doesn't need an excuse. It speaks for itself. If you want to, you know, read the liner notes, which I always do, that's fine. If you want to look at the Criterion booklet, that's fine. Here's another way of thinking about it. When is the first time the when is the time you most fall in love with a work of art? Is it the first time you encounter it or is it the 50th? When the when the first audiences including contemporary audiences when you hear Beethoven's 5th for the first time and you hear pa 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 bam and that's kind of shocking. And when you realize or you're watching this movie or that movie and you go, oh my God, I love this. I love this. But then it seems to me, or it's true in my case, then then I want to see it again and again and again. And it will reveal its different layers and different conductors, different performances, bring out different colors in that Beethoven's Fifth. At the same time, there are no spoilers because I know where this is going. And you've seen to be or not to be, you know where it's going. It actually gets better because you know where it's going. 
No, I mean, I, I we make a distinguish, distinguishment in um, editing rooms of you need to make it good enough to get someone to get to that second viewing. You can put a lot of depth into it, but you got to make sure that the movie's compelling enough to get to someone to watch it a second time. What do you think about uh, people having problems just movies before they're born as being the distinction? Oh, it's very hard to see a movie before you're born. If you're sitting in the womb and you're trying to watch the movie, you're going to have terrible, terrible problems. I can tell you that. I would like to think you may I... be able to hear it, but I, I don't think you can you can get much out of watching a movie before you were born. I would like to think I set you up for that. I I would hope so. Well, so I, you got mail. This, what? Where do you think? The, I get the other thing I want to wind down with is where do you think the state of romantic comedies are? Because clearly they're not being made as much. And I mean, I think the best you can say is that streamers are doing them to appeal to, to younger people, but. Like the theatrical is barely there for romantic comedies right now. I I sat down and wrote. I was trying to let me see if you, what you think of this lineage. So the supposed master of the romantic comedies. You put Lubitsch. Let's just start arbitrarily in the thirties. Lubitsch. Then you would maybe go to Preston Sturges. Then you'd mainly go to Billy Wilder. And there's there's a lot of gaps in here. If you want to fill any of these in, they come up later. People I'm missing. As far as I can tell, I go to Woody Allen next. Then I go to Cameron Crowe. James L. Brooks is somewhere in the middle of there. And then I get really lost again. I think there was a really tiny period. Kevin Smith was doing some good ones. I bring up Nancy Myers again, even though I'm not as big a fan of. I don't know if you put Nora Ephron in there somewhere. One of the weird ones I want to bring up is when Mumblecore started getting popular, Joe Swanberg. Like I, He had this uh, online series that I keep thinking about all these older filmmakers making people about young people falling in love he had this web series that you can't find anymore but the title of it is to me one of the most romantic comedy titles of, of all time it's just called young people fucking <laughs> my a woman i know named dory Durfner wrote a novel that was something like beautiful white people kissing about the movies <laughs> so it's very similar i guess let's just wind down i mean wait how how much do you, you you mentioned Wilder being the way into Lubitsch and I get that but how do you think Lubitsch influenced your writing just because I, I I think of witty but sincere but you know just these greatly story told movies that are cinematic I that that's the lineage I would compare you to Lubitsch to how do you think this, you is think? The ha- this is the happiest moment of my life you've had happier moments come on mm. Not this week. You know, I am, and I maybe should have said this at the start of our conversation, I am not a very analytical person. I know people who are. My girlfriend is, my, my, my girlfriend is, is extremely analytical. She'll meet somebody, she'll look at somebody, and she'll summarize it, them, a situation right away. She'll say, did you notice there aren't any whatever. And I, I didn't. And I, I am not a good analyst, not only of other things, but I suspect I am an indifferent analyst of my own personality and output. I think I'm very word oriented. I started out as a, as a writer before I was a filmmaker. And I think I write books for people who read. And I make movies, I think, in large measure for people who read, who are not afraid of language. I love that. Uh, Good. Um, I just don't know. You know, Robert Burns said, I would to God the gift he gave us to see ourselves as others see us. I can't quite see myself as others see us. Um, I'm sort of stuck on this side of the Jordan. I can't cross over to the promised land and look back and sort of see where I've been or what I did because I'm still doing it, which is, I think, a good thing. But I think it's up to other people to uh, characterize me or my work. And I just have to kind of roll with the punch and probably not to take my own press too seriously. I think that's a danger. Once you start believing your own PR, 
I, I think you may get smug or lazy or I think insecurity helps. <laughs> I, I think you guys make both adult literate movies and those are, we need more of those. Did you want, did you have anything you wanted to plug? Like you, it, you have that, is it the con podcast that's coming up? They redid your, your old scripts. Well, that's, it's, it's in the works. Let's say that con CD alpha five is in the works. The only thing I'll plug is my last Sherlock Holmes novel, The Return of the Pharaoh. I've read both of your last two uh, Sherlock Holmes novels. I liked it. So I I highly recommend it. I think they're masterpieces, and I think people shouldn't sleep until they've ordered copies. And I've just finished my sixth, which will be out in a year, Okay. called Sherlock Holmes and the Telegram from Hell. <laughs> okay. I mean... Writing books for people who like to read. What a novel idea. You should pardon the pun. <laughs> Nicholas Meyer, thank you so much again for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.